Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We are thrilled that you are here to worship our Lord and Savior with us. And there are a few, but I see them coming. I see people walking in. And so let's begin. If you all would stand with us, let's begin by reading this scripture out of Psalm 40, and then we'll continue worshiping in song. I've preached you to the whole congregation. I've kept back nothing, God. You know that. I didn't keep the news of your ways a secret, didn't keep it to myself. I told it all, how dependable you are, how thorough. I didn't hold back pieces of love and truth for myself alone. I told it all. Let the congregation know the whole story. We're going to hear today about doing good works, and um, you see it in this scripture in Psalm 40 that we just read, and this next song that we're going to sing. Hopefully this is a reminder throughout the service of the reason that we do good works. And Andy's going to touch on this later. And it's because of the good that he has done for us in our life and how we reflect that to the world. That's, that's our role because he has been so good and so faithful to each and every one of us. So let's sing about that God this morning. I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind. So, 
No shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't dribbling in. When we started, I thought, ooh, it's going to be fun preaching to myself. So I'm really glad to see you here today. If you're a guest today, we're thrilled that you've taken the time to worship with us. You can uh, go on the website at gracebiblechurch.org. Uh, go to the visitor center, and they'll give you information, or you can tear off the card on the bulletin you were handed and fill out the information, drop that in the offering plate, and we'll contact you and give you information. We'd love to have you be involved at Grace. One way you can do that is come an hour earlier and go to one of our adult Bible classes or call the church staff, and we'll find places for you to be involved. We'd love for you to be a part of our church family. I have a couple of announcements. Uh, one that's not on the list is tomorrow is the last day you can register to vote and still vote in the primaries. If you're not registered to vote, there's a table out in the commons with voter registration cards. And you can fill it out and drop it in. As long as it's postmarked tomorrow, you're good to go. Uh, another announcement is February 23rd will be the Sunday of our annual missions conference. We have a great speaker. We all have all, Lucas Rogers and his team have developed a wonderful program. It will be an outstanding Sunday. And because somewhere in the Bible says, if you feed them, they will come. Because of that, we have food trucks come. And uh, for $5, you get to eat in one of the several food trucks we have. They'll serve during the third service and after the third service. And if you want to come for that, if you buy your tickets before the 23rd, they're $5 a person, $20 max for family, even if you have 20 kids. And uh, if you wait till then, it's $7.50 on the day off. But please plan on coming to the missions conference. It's a highlight, and you'll be grateful that you did, and the food is pretty stinking good as well. Secondly, February 8th, Saturday, is the first annual student missions gala. Now, we finally put to death the um, Oldie Wed game. It was a wonderful event that, that we did for about 100 years, and then we decided it was time for something new. So this Saturday night, we have the Student Gala, which will be kind of a variety show. There will be desserts. There'll be a, a silent auction. It'll be a fun evening, and we'd really encourage you to come. All the money from it goes to help our student ministries go on mission trips. Historically, our students because of their experience hands-on in missions, both here and in, in uh, other countries, have had a real bias toward go, serving the Lord uh, around the world. And this is an important part of it. It's not a vacation. It is educational, but they need help financially. And one of the ways we do that is through the, the gala. And we'd love for you to come. I promise you, you'll enjoy the evening, and it'll help a good cause. Right, Mr. Barth? Yes, sir. Very good. You answered correctly. Um, we're going to continue worship. One of the ways we do as believers is we give offerings to the work of the Lord. Um, for many years, the, the pastor always said at the offering, um, if you don't know Jesus, we're not asking you to give. Instead, we're asking you to receive the free gift of salvation that comes from Jesus' uh, death on the cross. And we don't always say it every Sunday, but we still believe it, that 
We give as a function of our gratitude for what God has done for us. And if you're a believer, it is a part of our worship to give, to recognize all that God has done to us. But if you don't know Jesus, we don't feel any pressure by this at all. The greatest thing you could do is receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus' death on the cross. Please join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the abundance that we have in you. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being born in a country where we can so freely worship you. And Father, as we worship by giving, we pray that you would use what is given to do your work here and around the world. Pray you'd bless the giver and use the gift for the work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please join me in prayer. From Psalm 1-2, 112. Praise the Lord.
Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in His commands. Their children will be mighty in the land, and the generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his ho their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news because their hearts are steadfast. They trust in the Lord. Father, we hang on to the centrality of trusting in you. Because we live in a world that's fraught with all kinds of difficulty. It's hard to find anything to place your hope in. Everything is shifting. Everything is passing. It, it, it seems as though each day brings new changes, but you're always the same. And your gospel is always evident and available. And we can trust in you. Lord, teach us to live our lives as if we believe the gospel so completely that it shapes how we deal with you and with the world around us. Cause us to trust you so completely that we're fearless in our obedience, even when it's uncomfortable. In your own prayers, take a few moments to consider the fact that Jesus gave his life so that you could live, so that you could be forgiven what that says about his love. And thank him for all the ways he's expressed your lo his love to you this past week. where you've lived in consistently with his will or your own, confess your sins because he forgives his children. And thank him for his many blessings. Tell him the desires of your heart. And pray for the needs of others. Pray for our missionaries today, two incredible people, Lewis and Ann Carter, who served as medical missionaries for 46 years. Pray for an undiagnosed health issue as well as their coming retirement that they might finish well. And pray for our nation, pray for our community, and pray for this church. Father, we are needy people. We are here today because we need you. Speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit and cause us to conform ourselves to your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past year, I already had, I planned the sermons out a year in advance, so from July through June, the sermons were already prepared, but I, I just had this overwhelming sense that we needed to have a new emphasis this year. And I prayed a lot about it, and I talked to the elders and deacons and staff and Julie and anyone else who would listen, and um, came to the conclusion that, that we needed an emphasis for the year, and that as I said in the first sermon of the series a couple of weeks ago, I, I felt that emphasis needed to be on outreach, evangelism and outreach, that when you look at the things that a church does, worship and teaching and fellowship and service, when you look at those things, historically, we're pretty good at most of those. 
In fact, uh, it's a church that I'm not proud because I didn't do anything. But when you see how this community tries to live out those things, it's, it's pretty encouraging. But if, if I were going to point to one thing we're not as good as we should be on, it's outreach. Um, and part of it is the world has changed. You know, it's, it's not the same as it used to be. And so there's a constant awareness of that we need to adjust how we reach out to the world about around us. So the first week I preached after being in Germany, I, I, I kind of gave a state of the church and went through those different areas and challenged us to move forward in outreach. And then the last week, Lucas did a great job on the second of the sermons that we had agreed on, and that was that love is the motivation. All you need is love, right? The Beatles understood it for all the rest of us. And that, that he looked at 1 John chapter 4, but, and, and you can go all the way to John 3, 16, the football verse, right? It's behind every goalpost all over America that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him not perish but have eternal life. That, that love is the motivation for God the Father to send his son. God himself said it. Love is his motivation. He did it because he loves humans. I don't know why, but he does, right? And that, that fundamentally, outreach is an outgrowth, a function of his love. And Lucas did a great job at that. Then we looked at this Sunday. Kevin nor Lucas wanted this Sunday. They wanted me to do this Sunday. Because this is the one you could potentially get in trouble and, you know, I'm always in trouble. You know, I have two mottos, disappointing someone every day. And my favorite one is comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So this is an outgrowth of that second motto in a lot of ways. We're going to talk about doing good is good too. Doing good is good too. Now, on one level you think, well, of course, doing good is good because it's good, right? I mean, if it's good, it's good, right? It's good. But if you look at the historical context in the evangelical church, this is actually a subject that is fraught with all kinds of tissue. It, it goes back in many ways, I mean, and everything goes back to creation, but I'm going to start with the Civil War, the war between the states. The war between states in America was, was a devastating time. We have no comprehension of just how devastating it was. And interestingly, it coincided with a great revival. Uh, there were many, many people that during the war between the states who professed Christ. But the devastation that it, uh, that it brought was so complete, there was in many ways a sense of hopelessness after it. Concurrent with that, in scholastic circles in the 19th century, the 1800s, German scholars were refuting the, the essence of the Christian gospel. They, they started by attacking the scriptures. And they said, in essence, it can't be a supernatural book. It's just a book. It's written by a lot of people that these Christians have made it into something that's not. And once you reject that book, then you can start rejecting everything else. Jesus wasn't a, the son of God. He was a man. He's an example. And Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead. He, he just inspired everyone by his life. And so you had concurrent to the Civil War at that same time, the growth of liberalism, and, and I know this is oversimplified, but it's work with me here, the liberalism that developed in, in Western Europe. And so something happened, and that is the development of, of a, a phenomenon that some have called the most unique of American contributions to the history of religion, and that is something called the social gospel. And the social gospel was in essence... Um, a living out of the gospel by doing good. And, and Walter Rauschenbusch is my favorite character because it's just such a great name. How would you not like someone named Walter Rauschenbusch and all the little Rauschenbusch babies? And, and, and he was a pastor in Hell's Kitchen of New York City, and he saw the horrible nature of what people lived in in Hell's Kitchen. And, and I think in many ways with the best of motives, says, surely... This isn't what God desires for people, right? But the social gospel developed, and, and I'm going to add another theological concept. Everyone hold on to your seats. Sit with me carefully. A doctrine called post-millennialism was developed. Bless you. Post-millennialism is a position that used to be very much in vogue, especially in the late 19th century, that said, we're going to, the church, Christians, are going to make the world a better place and a better place and a better, and we're going to finally make it so good that Jesus comes back. 
Jesus returns after the millennial kingdom, after we've gotten everything worked out. It's so good that everybody's happy to see Jesus come back because everybody's responded. And believe it or not, that was a huge theological position in the 19th century. Well, what happened to these things? World War I. Because postmillennialism created this incredible optimism of what humans could do as they did good for each other, that they could change the world by all their good efforts, and then suddenly the World War come, I comes, which they originally said, this is the war to end all wars, right? And World War I wreaked devastation in Western Europe in a way that we don't understand. There was a man in the little church I grew up in who had been in the trenches of World War I, and and he would have to leave the service at times because he, he had this horrible sounding cough. And that's because he had been mustard gassed in the trenches. That's one person I knew. But in, in Western Europe, one, one theory of why the United Kingdom became such a, a weak power in the 20th century is because they lost a whole generation of their leaders in the trenches of World War I. It, it was a massive holocaust of a war. And suddenly the optimism of postmillennialism and the optimism of the social gospel began to fall backwards. But something else went on. Uh, evangelicals, people like the evangelist White L. Moody, for whom Moody School of Theology and Moody Church in Chicago is named, uh, said, wait, 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 wait a minute. I, I, the gospel isn't about doing good. The gospel is what Jesus did for us. And, and, and you had this movement of evangelicals who, who responded to the theological liberalism that denied the supernatural, and they threw the baby out with the bathwater. They, they rejected all of that. And so that now, when you talk about doing good, you'll hear a phrase like, do-gooders. And, and, and it's actually a, a, a tense issue. Um, so I'm going to solve it today, right? Because that's why I'm here, just for you. We're going to turn to Ephesians. That was funny. Come on. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture for decades here at Grace Bible Church. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 were on the bottom of the bulletin when you came in because that verse was named after our church. No, our church was named after that verse. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says... For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That concept is in many ways the most important thought you can have today. After what you think of when you think of God, the second most important thought is what you believe, how you believe God interacts with humans. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that God chose to deal with us not based on our goodness. Why is that? Because we're not good, right? If he worked with us based on our goodness, we'd be in trouble, right? Right? Thank, thank you, thank you. Nod, breathe, blink, do something here. First service was the most animated today. Think about that. Anyway. <laughs> God chose not to deal with us based on our goodness. What did he do? He chose to deal with us based on his grace. And, and so that salvation is a gift. And the word... Grace comes to the word gift. The two are distinctly united. Salvation is a gift. And the only way you can get that gift is how? Through faith. And that is the most revolutionary idea about religion ever had. When you look at the world religions, the emphasis of all of them is to, to earn God's blessing by doing good, right? Whether it's how many prayers you say, how many alms you give, how many good things you do. When you look at religions, when you look at the heart of man, the whole emphasis universally is doing good. What's the problem with that? One, we can't. 
The book of Romans says we judge other people for doing the very things we do. We're not good enough to get there by doing good. And, and an odd output of it is when we start feeling good that we're doing good, what do we do? We get proud and we boast, which by definition takes us off that whole goodness thing. So the gospel, people like Dwight L. Moody in the first of the 20th century screamed from the rooftops, no, the gospel isn't about how good we do. The gospel is that a good God looked at humanity and saw our brokenness. And by the way, you and I see our brokenness all the time. Uh, The brokenness in the world isn't because of just the sin of our systems. It's the sin of the people who make up those systems, right? And that good, good God looked down at humanity and saw its brokenness and said, I'm going to respond. I'm going to give them a way to be forgiven. I'm going to give my son to pay the price for all their disobedience. And he's going to die. He's going to receive the death that they deserved. And he'll be resurrected on the third day to demonstrate his victory over that death. And the only way anybody can have that life is trusting what he did. Because there's no work in it at all. And men and women, that and that alone is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the one truth worth dying for. That is the essence of Christianity. And as soon as you take that out of any religion, it's no longer Christianity. We are saved by grace alone, and none of us can earn it. And as soon as we start feeling proud about how good we are, we are denying the very gospel we hold. Because the truth of the gospel is that God's standards are so high we could never meet them. And the only means by which we can be forgiven, the only means by which we can have a relationship with God, the only means by which we can gain his favor is to place our hope and trust in what he did through his son. That is an absolute non-negotiable you leave that it's not Christian it's something but it ain't Christianity the problem is too often we stop there too often we quote Romans I mean Ephesians 2 8 9 and we neglect to read verse 10 look at verse 10 for we are God's workmanship we're his work we're the pieces of his work Created in Christ Jesus, what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The dichotomy between the gospel and good works is not a biblical dichotomy. Now, the gospel is God's grace apart from good works. But the gospel's intention is when, it, when God works his revolutionary change in the heart of a human being, that they... And following him will give themselves to doing what he created them in Christ to do. What is that? To do good. To do good. Christianity was never intended by God to breathe some private self-help thing that you do to make your life better alone. It is, it is not something you go to the supernatural market store and buy it off the shelf, and from then on, you're going to make a little more money, you're going to be a little more handsome, your waist is going to be a little smaller, your children are going to be a little nicer, and all of life is going to be a little better. That is not Christianity. Christianity is responding to what Jesus did on the cross, his resurrection, embracing the forgiveness that comes by his death, so that we are become new pieces of work to do his work. We are called upon to do his work. And when you deny that, you're not, I mean, when you say that, you're not dying, denying the gospel. We are called to do good work. The body of Christ is called to do that. Why? Why? Because we're called to demonstrate who the God is that we claim. I was talking to someone the other day about the biblical illiteracy in our society. You know, when I was in the first grade, granted it was 120 years ago, but when I was in the first grade in, in an East Texas 
public elementary, we memorized Luke 2 for the PTA Christmas program. Christianity was just a part of life. Uh, not too long ago, we went down to Mercy Street in West Dallas and did Journey into Christmas, uh, talked them through, did the plays that are a part of Journey in Christmas, tell the Christmas story. And Trey Hill was the head of Mercy Street at the time. He said, Eddie, you realize these kids have never heard the story of Jesus' birth. We live in a society today where you can't assume that people know who the God of the Bible is. They've read stuff about what Christians do. They don't know who Jesus is. So how are they going to see what Jesus is like? Peter in his first epistle says, you know, what I'm glad for you guys is even though you didn't see Jesus, you believe him. So how do people see Jesus if, if Jesus isn't physically present? Do you think it's accidental that he calls his church the body of Christ? We are the physical representation of Jesus. And we are called upon to reflect the very character of Jesus in the way we live. Ironically, one of the great writers of the uh, social gospel was the guy who wrote the novel In His Steps. And he's the one that originated the phrase, what would Jesus do? And I think he's still getting royalties for all those little plastic bands that um, WWJD. Um, because uh, th there was an essence of truth in that, and that is that, that if, if we claim to know Jesus, then obviously we would want to live in such a way to reflect his character. How else would people know what Jesus is like if we don't do what Jesus does, right? That's why we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And historically in the body of Christ, followers of Jesus understood that we live out the life of Christ, not to be saved, but to, to demonstrate the love of Christ in our lives. We're called to do that. The gospel is never intended to be something just for me. The gospel, by its very nature, is something that's lived out in the life of others just as it was lived out for us. I had a seminary professor who asked one of those really stupid questions, and the time he asked it, you think, we paid for this tuition? And then you thought about it and thought, oh, that's why he's there. That's a really smart question. He said, when you became a Christian, why didn't God just take you from earth right then? I think that's a stupid question. I mean because I got bills to pay. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons. I mean, what a I mean, whoever thought of such a, he said, why isn't there an individual rapture? The very moment you come to faith, why didn't God just take you up into the clouds? What's the obvious answer? Because who's going to tell everybody else about Jesus? If that had happened to the people that told you about Jesus, you wouldn't know about Jesus, right? Why does God leave us here on earth to represent Jesus? That's our role. Our job here is to represent Jesus. What did Jesus do? He, he taught about the kingdom of God. He taught about the Father. He taught about the gospel, and he did good. And, and when we live out the gospel, we show people who Jesus is. Chuck Swindoll made famous the phrase, I don't know if it was original with him, but he's a lot smarter than I am, so I'm going to give him credit. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. The reality is that, that doing good is a function of living out the love of Christ. If the gospel is motivated by God's love, then surely the gospel should motivate me to live out love in the lives of others. Right? This is when you nod, say amen, blink twice. Give me something here, folks. I know the Super Bowl's on tonight, but it doesn't start for a while. Hollywood Henderson said, if it's the Super Bowl, why are they going to pay it again next year? Um, look at Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount is uh, the greatest sermon ever preached. And it's amazing how many times you'll get phrases from the Sermon on the Mount in the epistles. Paul and Peter, it's so clear that the words of the Sermon on the Mount seared their minds and they reflected over and over again. And some of the phrases that we Christians use most come from the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says a, a passage that if you've been around long, you've heard many times. You're salt of the earth, 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. What is he saying? You have a job to do what your job is, right? He's saying to those who followed him, you have a job to do what your job is. And if you don't do your job, what, what's the point of you? The job of salt is to be salty. And if it didn't salty anymore, it's not doing its job, there's no point in it. Throw it out in the ground, let it go. Then he expands on it with another metaphor in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and gives light to everyone in the house. If, if the salt has to be salty, then the light has to be lighty, right? <laughs> You're working with me here? I'm from East Texas. This is... In other words, if, if salt is a metaphor for our role in the body of Christ, light is as well. And he says, just as the salt has to be salty, light has to do its job. And you wouldn't turn a light on and then cover it up because then it's not doing its job. So once again, it's saying, you're called as my followers to do a job, to, to be a certain way, to live a certain life. So you've got to do that life. I wonder what that one is. It's go to church. No, that's not what he says. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men. And what does that mean? That they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What is the job of the believer? To do good. I'm not talking social gospel. I'm not saying replace the gospel. See, that's the problem with the social gospel. They took the job of the believer and replaced the gospel with it. You, you have to have the gospel to be a believer. But the problem with some of us conservative evangelicals, we, we, have, we have camped on the gospel and then neglected the job, which is doing good. We do good because why? That's who we're being transformed to be, right? Right? Being conformed into the image of Christ, if you're in the image of Christ, what would you do? You'd do things that Jesus did. You would do good. That doesn't deny the gospel, it enhances the gospel. We're called as a people to live out the love of Christ by doing good. Some of you think, he's getting political. Look out, he's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be political. There's a debate on how, on all kinds of issues. But there is no debate biblically about if. You cannot read Scripture honestly. You cannot treat the Word of God honestly and say we have no responsibility to care for the world around us. It is a non-negotiable that Scripture clearly teaches that when you are infected by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you have experienced the love of Christ. When you have experienced the regeneration of the new birth, then you are called to be his workmanship, to, to do the good works that he has foreordained from, from his eternity past for you to do. We're supposed to do good. We're supposed to do good. Had a, a leader in the church leave here a while back. He said, I'm a liberal. <laughs> and, and he said, you're, well, I said, why, why do you think I'm a liberal? He said, well, you got, you're sending volunteers over to Calier Elementary, and they're, they're teaching kids, helping kids that are Spanish-speaking how to read English. I said, why is that liberal? He said, well, Kiwanis Club could do that. And, and I said, uh-uh. Um, <laughs> because I'm a really articulate follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the, we do that because that's what the love of Christ would do. Right? Jesus fed people. Jesus healed people. And I, you know what's ironic about that? He, he left over that. You know what's really ironic about that? Now we have a gospel club that meets at Calier where children from Calier are coming to hear the gospel and we were given the freedom to do that because they saw the love of Christ and our volunteers who went over and served them. Because, because we showed something about who Jesus is so that they were receptive about what Jesus said. It's not an either or, men and women. Uh, we, 
we don't get to choose whether we love the men and women and children around us. We, we don't get to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, and love other people if they're Christians, or if they agree with us, or if they didn't do anything to deserve the way they got into the, this mess. We, we, we don't get that right. We are called to represent the love of Christ in the way we live to the world around us, because the world around us is in a mess and desperately needs to see the love of God, so they'll want to receive the grace of God. And if we don't live it, why should they want it, Right? Right? Nod, blink, amen, something. I'm dying here. They, okay, that's over the top. I'm a Presbyterian. You're making me nervous. Um, Matthew 25, verse 35. I know it's written in the context of eschatology the last days, but the truth is here. Matthew 25, 35. The king is speaking to the people of God, and he said, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat, and I was thirsty, and gave me something to drink, and I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. We do good not only because it represents the character of God, but this is the one that really gives me chills. We do good because when we do good, Jesus receives it as a gift to himself. Jesus receives it as a gift to himself. We, because Jesus loves everyone, right? John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And when we serve other people, even, even if they deserve their mess, right? Who doesn't? Every bit of trouble I've ever gotten into, I deserved at some level. Ask my wife. We, we, we do that as an expression of the love of Christ. And he receives it as a gift to himself. Jesus said, if you gave a, a cup of water to one of these children, it's as if you gave it to me. And, and, and Scripture says that nothing we do for him will return void. Every bit of it he can use. And you say, well, I, I didn't get to tell him the gospel. If you can, you should. But if you don't, that doesn't mean you don't do good, right? We're supposed to be living representatives of the very heart of God. And thank God the heart of God is gracious and merciful and loving and kind. That's why we embrace the gospel of Christ, right? And then therefore, if we embrace the gospel, we're called to live out that love in the lives of other people. We're called to be merciful and kind and embrace those who are broken and hurting. And, and, and I know all the political debates. I know because I get emails and voicemails from you. I know all your opinions. But it's not negotiable whether we show love to each other. It's, you may question how, but there's no right to deny expressing the love of Christ to the world around us. We are all called to that. And when we do it, we experience the grace of God in our lives. And God's Spirit uses it in a miraculous way. And thank God someone did that for me. Because I sure didn't deserve it. Thank you for amening that I didn't deserve it. That's, that's one of my elders. Um, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Apostle Paul builds on this. He said, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant because works makes you arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. And listen to the Sermon on the Mount here. In this way you lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life, which is truly life. 
Now hear me. The failing of the social gospel is it replaced the gospel. It made doing good now more important than keeping people out of hell. It made people's relationships today more important than their eternal relationship to God. And there is nothing better than you can do than introduce someone to Jesus. There, there's no gift you can give them that's more important than salvation. As important as a meal or a place to live or a kind word or physical healing, as important as all of those things are, there is nothing as important as someone meeting the God of their salvation, right? And sometimes we who get caught up in the issues of the social gospel and justice and all of that act as though the gospel becomes less important. And that's why it's so often rejected by people who believe the gospel. Because the here and now is light and momentary. The gospel is about eternity. And we dare not get so caught up in doing good now that we neglect the reality of people's eternal destination. Right? Served for a number of years with a guy named Ford Madison. He started the Dallas Christian Leadership Prayer Breakfast. He was an evangelist. He was a friend of people like Billy Graham, a great guy. And I'd ask him, well, he'd say, what are you here for, Andy? And he said, we'd talk and on. He always said, I kind of think our most important job is to have a part in depopulating hell. What's more important? So hear me. There's nothing more important than the fact that Jesus died on the cross of the sins of the world and was resurrected on the third day and whoever believes in him can have eternal life. But that in no way negates his followers' responsibility to live out his love in the world in which we live. It's absolutely consistent with the gospel to go read to Spanish-speaking kids to go serve food to the homeless, to sit with your neighbor whose marriage is broken up and cry with them, to do, do kindness wherever God gives you an opportunity. All of those things are the natural outgrowth of experience in the grace of God. It's good to do good, right? May God use us. May God use us not only to proclaim the gospel, but to live the gospel. May God use us to not only talk about the character of God, but to demonstrate the character of God. May, may our neighbors see Jesus in us. Okay, I got a confession. I can't remember if I've said this or not. I'm getting older. This is my third time. You know what I'm saying? Um, if you're on the church email list, did I say this? You're going to get an email right after church, and it's going to have a, a, a site that you can click on. And the site will ask you to give your name and address. And then if you register for it, five days a week, it will send you names of your immediate neighbors and their address. That's all. No private information. It'll just send the name and address of 25 immediate neighbors, five a day, I think. And what we asked you to read Randy Newman's book, Question of Evangelism, this month. You know what we're going to ask you to do this week? Pray for your neighbors by name. Maybe you don't like some of them. Pray that God will bless them. Maybe you don't know some. Pray that God will give you an opportunity to get to know them. We're just asking you this month. This is not high contact. Pray for your neighbor. Click on it. For the month of February. Let's pray for the people that God has placed next door to us. Please join me as we pray. Father, forgive us that in our peanut little brains, we've separated doing good from your gospel. Or we've separated the gospel from doing good. Help us to grasp how unbelievable the fact of your forgiveness through faith by grace really is. But Lord, God also cause us 
to be so reignited by that truth that we live that life out in loving the world around us. To the down and outers and the up and outers, to the stranger and the friend, to the broken and the successful, Lord, give us hearts for the world. And we can't thank you enough that you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare for the Lord's table, will you join me in reading the Apostles' Creed, affirming what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again and sent unto heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the universal church, the communion of saints, the resurrection, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I'm sorry. We celebrate the gospel in this meal. The Apostle Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death by eating this meal. It is a public testimony of our partaking of what Jesus did on the cross, identifying with it, because that's our only hope for forgiveness and salvation. Please join me in prayer as the elders come forward. Father, thank you that you love the unlovely. Thank you that you do good to the evil. Thank you that you sacrifice for the selfish. Thank you that through your Son we can be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. Take and eat.
the Lord's Supper was probably a Passover meal and, meal, and Jesus took a cup, which was called the cup of redemption, I believe. He held it up and said, this cup is my blood, blood of the new covenant, shed for the remissions of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Take and drink. Father, I pray that you would make the gospel alive in us anew. Compel us to live the love that captured us. Compel us to demonstrate Jesus in all that we do. And give us the courage to tell others the good news of forgiveness. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 Would you all stand with us and let's sing the chorus of this last song together and remembering why we do these good works and it's because of how good and faithful the Father is to us. So let's sing, let's sing this together as we close. benediction is based on John 3, 16 and 17. It says, just as God's word was sent into the world to heal and redeem, so God sends you into the world this day to be light and love, healing and hope. So go now to be light of the world and may the grace and peace of God, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer come upon you this day and remain with you always. Go in peace, you are dismissed.